Well, before we open the Word of God this morning, I want to uh, ask that the elders come and stand with me and also the deacons. This is not planned, so I can see some of the strange looks on your faces. This is not in the order of service. If you're an elder or a deacon, come on up. Kyle, you can stand right next to me. All right. I don't know how many of you heard the news, but uh, Kyle uh, has been working really hard uh, for several weeks now and really several months uh, in a bid for the mayor of Sumas. And uh, after the election results came in on Tuesday, Kyle won. <laughs> and so we have standing before. Yes, yes. <laughs> And I, I just want to say, uh, Kyle, uh, outside of the email I sent you and the handshake, I want to publicly acknowledge you and say that I, I am so proud of you. And we're so excited that you will be in this new role. And as we were worshiping this morning, the thought uh, struck me. Most of you are familiar with Hudson Taylor. And one of my favorite Taylor quotes goes like this. Uh, Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Wouldn't that be a great motto to wear around your neck, to expect that God would do great things and also attempt to do great things for God? And so I want to have you gentlemen come and let's lay hands on our brother and let's, let's commit him to the Lord as he um, uh, moves forward with this exciting responsibility. So, Father, we pray for Kyle. We thank you for his, his love for uh, the word of God and the gospel. Thank you for the way that you've used his family here at Christ Fellowship to uh, raise up leaders and to help equip the saints and to to serve people uh, with hands and with feet and uh, to communicate the gospel of grace to people in this community. Now we commit him to you as he takes on a, a new and exciting responsibility as the mayor of Sumas. We pray that you would give him wisdom. We pray that you would give him strength, help him to be able to uh, organize his time with all the different responsibilities that are on his plate. And as Hudson Taylor said, expect great things from God and a tip attempt great things for God, we pray that that would be a, a motto that he could wear around his neck, that in the days to come, you would use him to do mighty things in, in the city of Sumas, all for the great honor and glory of Jesus Christ. We commit him to you now in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 I want to invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. Last week, we witnessed what we referred to as the powerful preamble of Paul. As he whet the appetite of the believers in Ephesus for the truth of God's word and what was to come in this powerful little letter. We learned a, a bit about the author and we learned that Paul was an apostle. And this apostle was, as we learned in verse 1, commissioned by the sovereign will of God. We also learned a bit about the recipients of this letter. He refers to them as saints, as people who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And then finally, we learned about the motivation for Paul to write this letter to the Ephesian church. Indeed, this is a celebration of divine favor where he extends grace and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And before we move past the preamble, I want to have you just, just pause for a moment and, and let that sink in. Each one of you and me 
is a sinner. And we are, are receiving this amazing word from Ephesians chapter 1 that God has sent his grace and peace. We let that sink in. Don't let it slide by. Don't take it for granted. The God of the universe has extended grace and peace. Well, the title of the message this morning is a reason to rejoice. And after studying the powerful preamble, it should not surprise you to learn in the verses that follow that Paul tells the Ephesian believers that they indeed have a reason to rejoice. And if the believers in Ephesus have a reason to rejoice, that means something very personal for you and I. It means that you and I also have a reason to rejoice. As we look together at Ephesians chapter 1 and as we stand in a moment, I want to, to have you use your imagination for a minute. And I want you to, however you are wired, whatever your hobbies are, whatever your inclinations are, I want you to imagine the most incredible celebration that could ever be possible. Most of you know how I'm wired. If I think of a celebration, I think of a football game at CenturyLink. And I see crazy people shouting and cheering and extending their arms and hooting and hollering. It's this crazy celebration. Now, that only pales in comparison to the celebration that we're going to read about here in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. You think of the, the most monumental celebration that could ever happen in all of human history. And if you have that etched into your mind, I want you to multiply that celebration by 10 billion and now that you've multiplied it by 10 billion, you need to realize that you're not even close to discovering the depth of this celebration. Stand with me as we read in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Paul the Apostle writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, it is an amazing thing that we can join in the heavenly choir as we read these opening verses of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, which in all reality is a letter that is also addressed to us, the people of God. And so we join in this heavenly chorus. We join in this heavenly celebration. And God, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to the beauty of the celebration that occurs in these verses. Father, if there is anything that is preventing us from experiencing the joy of salvation and all the blessings that are associated with it. I ask that by the power of your spirit, you would remove all those barriers, that you would sovereignly crush them, and that we would move forward for the glory of God, that we would accept the teaching of your word, that we would rejoice together in the blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. For it's in his worthy name we pray. Amen. 
Let me just say that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that you are blessed beyond measure. Did you know that? You are absolutely blessed beyond measure. And I want to begin this morning by giving you the truth point in advance. It's a truth point that we'll return to over and over again. That we have a reason to rejoice because God has chosen us. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a reason to rejoice because God has chosen you. Now, I understand I understand that when some of you see one word in that sentence, it makes you nervous. It raises your theological hackles. And no, I'm not referring to the word rejoice. And no, I'm not referring to the word reason. And of course, I'm not referring to the word God. What is the word I'm referring to? It's the word chosen. You say, there it is again, the doctrine of election. And so what I want to do by way of introduction is I want to to build a bridge to any of you who are suspicious or nervous or even angry that we would even begin to explore the doctrine of election. I understand. I, I, I understand very well the concerns that many good followers of Christ And sincere followers of Christ have about this doctrine. I should tell you that early on in my Christian journey, this is in my my late teens and my early 20s, I held, and I should say probably even before my early and late teens, as as a junior high school student and as a high school student and moving on into Bible college, I held very tightly to a twofold assumption. And the twofold assumption that I clung to are two assumptions that are also held by Arminians. Now, we're not going to go into great detail about what an Arminian is, but by way of introduction, Jacob Arminius was the name of the theologian. He was born in 1560, and he was a man who, who fought what we refer to as the doctrines of grace or Reformed theology. And there are two presuppositions or assumptions that I embraced as a young follower of Christ that are both Arminian assumptions. The first assumption goes like this. Election is according to foreknowledge. Election is according to foreknowledge. What you need to understand this morning is that election is the explicit teaching in Scripture. If you're a follower of Christ, simply put, you must believe in election. You have no choice. But there are two major ways to to perceive of election. And this is the way that I perceived of election for many years as a young Christian. Election according to foreknowledge. This view simply says this, and some of you will be familiar with this. That in eternity past, God looked down the tunnel of time. And as he looked down the tunnel of time, and the furthest person in, in, in my eyesight today is sitting. I'm going to embarrass him because he's not even in the sanctuary. Hi, Tyler. The furthest person away from me is Tyler. So it's as if God in eternity past looked down the tunnel of time and he saw Tyler, a sinner. And he, he perceived, since God is a God of omniscience, he saw that there would be a, a day in Tyler's life. 
that he would believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the basis of Tyler's faith, God would choose him. That's the view known as election according to foreknowledge. The second assumption that I held early on in my Christian life is this, and this is one that I held even tighter than the first assumption. The second assumption I held to is that the will is entirely free. The will is entirely free. This person, according to my original assumption, says that people have the power and the ability to both accept and reject the gospel. Let me say it again. This view of free will says a person is absolutely free, that they both have the inclination and the ability to either accept the gospel or reject the gospel. This person has the power to believe the gospel or disbelieve the gospel. Some of you are familiar with the late James Montgomery Boyce. He was a a godly man who pastored 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And he says this about Arminianism. He says, for Arminianism, human decision makes making. Let me start again. For Arminianism, human decision-making holds a central place in salvation. This results in a theology that is not exclusively God-centered, but is distorted in the direction of the self. Arminianism supplies exactly what today's evangelicalism demands, a gospel that preserves a determinative role for personal choice. Close quote. Now, both of these assumptions, and I notice it's assumption number one and assumption number one. Use your imagination. Both assumption number one and assumption number two were not pet peeves that I held on to. Rather, these are assumptions that are widely held across the spectrum of believers in our culture. But I should tell you that after wrestling, and it it was a mighty wrestling match. It was a wrestling match that sent me to the book of Romans, to the book of Galatians, to the book of Ephesians, to the book of Colossians, to the book of 1 Thessalonians, to the gospel of John, to the gospel of Matthew, and other New Testament books. It was a, a wrestling match where I came to the conclusion that these two assumptions were not only wrong, but they were unbiblical to the very core. And so what you will hear in this message this morning is in the context of understanding. What you will hear this morning is in the context of empathy. What you will hear this morning is from a pastor who, if you reject the doctrine of unconditional election, I get it. I understand. Because I sat in my dorm room and I would argue and argue and argue and argue. In fact, one of the gentlemen that I argued with, he was one of my best friends to this day, and he loves to remind me about how I argued with him. In fact, I just sent him a text a few days ago and I said to him, Dave, I said, thank you so much for recommending over 30 years ago the book by R.C. Sproul, Chosen by God. It's a book that had a a powerful effect on me. And I read the book with, with my teeth gritted. 
I read the book with my, with my fists that were clenched. I did not like it one bit because it conflicted with these two assumptions that were so very important to me. And so please understand this morning, you are going to hear someone who is impassioned, who is fired up, who is excited about these great doctrinal realities. But remember that if you struggle with them, I have walked in your moccasins. I walked for several years in your moccasins as I I traveled on a path that opposed what Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 teach. Now, people are all over the map when it comes to the doctrinal election. I want to show you some different examples of where people are. First of all, I want to look on the screen here and have you see the first area where, where people are concerning this doctrine. Can we go to the next slide, please? Some people, when you consider the doctrine of election, are simply confused. They they just don't understand how all these things work together. How can God be sovereign? How can we have the ability to make free decisions? How does it all work together? There are not only the confused, but there are those who are chagrined. This moves beyond mere confusion. There are people who absolutely don't like this doctrine. I can tell you my personal story is I wasn't confused at all. I knew exactly what I believed. I was chagrined. Anyone that would come to me and argue that the Bible teaches that we are chosen unconditionally, I didn't like it one bit. And so you may land in that category, which I certainly understand. And then there are some people in the church today who actually celebrate this doctrine. There are people who are excited about this doctrine. And my challenge today is a very steep challenge because my challenge is to show you that the doctrine of unconditional election is not only biblical and right, but it is a doctrine that should cause us to join in the heavenly chorus and raise our arms together and shout glory to God because we are so excited about this. Once again, we have a reason to rejoice because God has chosen us. Now, this morning, we need to do some some legwork before we go to the text. And we need to discover together the backdrop of election. We need to learn about the backdrop of election. And there are three things that I want you to see that that are explicit truths in the word of God. The first is this, as we uncover the backdrop of election. The first thing is we need to realize that that we are all totally depraved. We are all totally depraved. Edwin H. Palmer says this about total depravity. He says total depravity means that natural man, that is natural men and women, are never able to do any good that is fundamentally pleasing to God and in fact does evil all the time. And we need to run that definition from from Palmer against the definition that many of us have grown up with. We all know Romans chapter 3 very well, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But what we have to wrestle with is what does it truly mean to be totally depraved? I think Palmer gets to the essence of it, that the non-believer... The natural person is never able to do any good that is fundamentally pleasing to God and, in fact, does evil all the time. I want you to see several things about the the teaching concerning total depravity in the Bible. I want you to see also that sinners are born, not made. 
Sinners are born, not made. Every time a, a boy or a girl emerges from the womb, and some of you have heard me refer to this, typically people will say, oh, what a cute little boy, or what a cute little girl. And I always think the same thing. That cute little boy, that cute little girl is lost in sin. Because sinners are born, not made. It's not, as some have said, that the child is born with a a tabula rasa, that is a blank slate. And it's through the course of time, it's through taking cookies and disobeying mom and disobeying dad and getting in trouble at school, that one day the seven-year-old emerges a sinner. No. From the very first breath, each one of us, the Bible says, we were born in sin. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 tells us that the heart is wicked. Apart from grace, the heart is desperately wicked. It's desperately sick. Jeremiah says, who can understand it? Romans chapter 3 verse 11 says that unconverted people have no desire for God. There is no inclination or desire for God in the heart of any unconverted person. Additionally, the Bible teaches in Romans chapter 3, verse 12, that unconverted people have no inclination to do good. They have no inclination to do good. Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8 says that we have a deep hostility for God. We not only have a deep hostility for God, we have a deep hatred for God. Moving ahead in Romans chapter 3, we learn that unconverted man has no fear of God. There is simply no fear of God before their eyes. Now, if we move forward to Ephesians chapter 2, we'll get there in several weeks. We learn this, and it's a very important reality concerning total depravity. That is that we are dead in sin. We are dead in sin. John chapter 6 verse 44 tells us that we are enslaved in sin and unable to come to Christ apart from God's empowerment. Many of you have heard the old life jacket illustration. And I must tell you, as a, as a young youth pastor, I used to use this illustration all the time. I would tell the young people that they were sinners, that they were lost in sin, that without grace they would die in their sins. And that to imagine themselves as, as on the ocean, floating at the top of the ocean, and they need to cry out to the captain to send the life preserver. You see the problem with the illustration? Because the Bible teaches that we're not a lost sinner on top of the water crying out for the life preserver. Rather, where are we? ah, Thank you, Tony. We're at the bottom. We're on the bottom of the ocean floor. Imagine this with a straight jacket on, with duct tape on our mouth, with duct tape over our ears, with duct tape over our eyes. We are lost and hopeless and dead in sin. We're, We're not crying out for anything because we don't have a desire for God. We are lost and enslaved in sin. We see that the sinner, the totally depraved person, is in a posture that can best be described as total inability. And by the way, total inability could be a synonym for total depravity. One writer says that man is a free agent, but he cannot originate the love of God in his heart. His will is free in the sense that it is not controlled by a force outside himself. He said, as the bird with a broken wing is free to fly, 
but not able, so too the natural man is free to come to God, but not able. Romans chapter 1 tells us that apart from grace, we are under the almighty wrath of a holy God. That's number one, that we are totally depraved, totally unable, totally incapable of coming to God on our own. Number two, I want you to see that we are sinful to the very core. That as we examine our lives, as we examine our souls, that if you're unconverted this morning, the Bible says you are sinful to the very core. My favorite Puritan, Thomas Watson, who wrote a a book called A Body of Divinity, said this. He said that sin has degraded us of our honor. Think about that. Sin has degraded us of our honor. He said sin disquiets the peace of the soul. He said sin produces all temporal evil. And then finally, Thomas Watson said, sin unrepented of brings final damnation. He concluded his argument and said that sin brings a sting in the conscience, a curse in the estate, yet men love it. A sinner is the greatest self-denier for his sin. He will deny himself a part of heaven. And so we are not only totally depraved, we are sinful to the core. And there's a third thing. And I want to linger here for a moment. And it's one that I think you'll find fascinating. And that is that our wills are free. Our wills are free, yet our wills are paralyzed. Our wills are free, yet our wills are paralyzed. You'll see a section in your notes that I've entitled Free Will 101. And I know some of you like to discuss the topic of free will, as do I. But there's four things I want to share with you about free will that will provide the context and the necessary backdrop that will enable us to move forward in verse 3 to understand it with biblical precision. First of all, free will number one. We all possess free will. That might surprise you that I said that. We all possess free will. There is a, a caricaturization, I should say. There is a, a, a cartoon picture of those who embrace the doctrine of unconditional election. It goes like this. You guys don't believe in free will. I've had so many people say this to me personally over the years. I hear you don't believe in free will. Nothing could be further from the truth. We all possess free will. Jonathan Edwards defines the will as that by which the mind chooses anything. That's what free will is. He says it's the faculty of the will is that power or principle of the mind by which it is capable of choosing. I want to exercise my free will. All right. Uh, there you go. Would you just hold that during the whole sermon for me? I wouldn't do that to you. But I did that freely. No one forced me to do it. I did it of my own free will. And we can all make decisions like that at any time. But move forward with me. We are never forced to act contrary to our nature. And that might not have a whole lot of meaning to you now, but as we move forward, you'll see why it's so important. That is, we always choose according to our strongest inclination. 
Jonathan Edwards says, a, a man never in any instance wills anything contrary to his desires or desires anything contrary to his will. G.I. Williamson, a man who edited the Westminster Confession of Faith, says, by free will, we mean that man's will is not coerced. We mean that man is not forced by some external force greater than himself to do something he does not want to do. We mean that man is free to do what he wants to do within the limits of his ability. Third, freedom, because we've learned that we all have free will, freedom does not imply ability. Freedom does not imply ability. Let me give some examples. Sinful creatures are free to fly, but not able to fly. Do you know nothing prevents me from flying? I'm free to fly. But the big problem is, should I try it? Right over, right over your heads, right? I want to do it. I'm free to do it, but I'm just incapable of doing it. Sinful creatures are free to swim under the water without oxygen for an extended period of time, but... Is CJ here? Without oxygen, they're absolutely unable to do it. Johnny Erickson Tata, one of my heroes, is free to jump from her wheelchair at any time. Someone help me. But she can't. She's simply incapable of performing that activity. And here's where it gets really interesting. Sinful creatures are free to come to God but they are incapable of coming to God apart from God drawing them. Williamson says, we have not natural ability to discern and choose God's way because we have no natural inclination Godward. Our hearts are in bondage to sin and only the grace of regeneration can free us from that slavery. Finally, Totally depraved people are free to do both good and evil, but only able to do evil because of the radical nature of their sinful condition. One writer says, with sin's entrance, man lost the ability to do good, not liberty. And so once you get a a better understanding of your lost condition, and I think you would agree with me, this Our lost condition, it's about as bad as it can possibly be. Once you understand it, once you embrace it, once you realize that you're without hope and without God in the world, then and only then will you be in a position to move forward in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Over the course of the next two weeks, I want to zero in on these two verses and show you four pillars of truth that will help undergird your Christian life, and also demonstrate why you have a reason to rejoice. And we're only going to look at the first pillar today. Next week, we'll look at the next three. And so pillar number one, I want you to see pillar number one that emerges in verse three. It's what we refer to as the preeminent blessing, the preeminent blessing. Verse three says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
as we look at this preeminent blessing, I want you to discover with me four critical realities. Four critical realities. Number one, realize that the fountainhead of all the blessings that we receive come directly from the hand of the Father. The fountainhead of all of our blessings originate directly from the hand of God the Father. Now, Jason, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best. I'm going to try this, so please don't grade me. And if you do, grade on a curve. Are you ready? Will you join me and sing this song? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Give it a good postscript. Good harmony, too. Now, do you notice the first lines of that verse that we sing nearly every week? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That is, praise God the Father from whom all blessings flow. Look at verse 3. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What we will see in verses 3 to 14, which, by the way, in the Greek text, verses 3 to 14 is one sentence. It's what my English teacher called a run-on sentence. I would love to show this sentence to my English teacher in the eighth grade. It's as if Paul the Apostle sits down and writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is so filled with heavenly joy. He says, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Additionally, what we'll see in verses 3 to 14 is the Trinitarian nature of salvation. We will see over the course of the next few weeks the role of God the Father, which we have just discovered one of his roles is all of our blessings. The fountainhead of all of our blessings comes directly from the hand of God the Father. We will also discover the role of the Son. And there are certain responsibilities that the Son participates in. And finally, we will discover the important roles of the Holy Spirit. That all of our blessings come from the hand of the Father is seen throughout Scripture. Just a few examples. Luke chapter 1, verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. If you are a Jew in the first century and you hear these words that God brings blessing to you, that he has come to you, he has visited you, Those are words that should fill your heart with joy. Romans chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creatures rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Romans 9, verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. What we need to discover is not only 
is the, the fountainhead of all the blessings that we have as followers of Jesus, founding God the Father, we realize that the blessings are intimately linked to the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you, if you have a highlighter or a pen, I'd encourage you to mark that word blessed in verse 3. That word blessed comes from a Greek word that means to act kindly toward. It means to provide benefits for someone. In this case, it is all of the people of God. I want you to notice the domain of this blessing that God the Father has blessed us in Christ. God the Father has blessed us in Christ and move beyond the domain of the blessing and look at the degree of the blessing. The Bible says that we are blessed in Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so this verse acts as a sort of a springboard, a sort of an umbrella, and is the basis for all the other blessings that we're going to explore in verses 3 to 14. The degree of this blessing that we receive is absolutely astronomical. These are blessings that we can scarcely comprehend, for God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This weekend I read a, a fiction book. And within the pages of this fictional book was a story that I won't bore you with, but it was a story about the Hubble telescope. Some of you are interested in astronomy. It's, it's a fascinating field about the cosmos, about the universe, about the, the Milky Way, and on and on and on. And, and in the pages of this book, you learn about the the millions and millions and millions of miles that the Hubble telescope is, is sending back pictures. We see these amazing pictures of God's good, good creation. And I think to myself, I, I this doesn't compute for me. I, you hear how fast light travels. You, you learn about the stars you learn about the solar system, and my mind can't take it in. And that's exactly what it's like here in verse 3, where we learn that we have been granted spiritual blessings in Christ. Most notably, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This should make your soul sing. Let me just say and speak from the heart. If you're sitting here right now going, I can't believe we have to learn about election. Move on. These realities should make your soul sing. To, be, to bring you to the point where you're so thankful that you're a Christ follower. It should cause worship to for, pour forth from your lips. These great realities should, should want you to go to the mission field. Say, God, I have no idea how I'm going to get there. But I want to tell the nations. I want to tell the nations of God's electing love. See, when this reality got into the Apostle Paul's bloodstream, he exploded in praise to God. As we were worshiping this morning, I was just trying to imagine what it would be like to sit next to Paul. Look down and see his hairy feet, sandals, right? He's sitting there with the candle and he's writing, Blessed be. And I'm just watching. 
imagining what that would be like. It, the great doctrinal realities that we're looking at this morning got into Paul's bloodstream and he exploded in praise and worship to God. He said it in other places in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He said in 1 Peter 1.3, this is the Apostle Peter rather, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so we've seen that the fountainhead of all the blessings that we have in the Christian life come directly from the hand of the Father. That secondly, these blessings are intimately linked to the, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And third, I want you to see that these blessings are spiritual blessings. That word spiritual in verse 3 simply means supernatural. Supernatural. Once again, the word blessing here means the full abundant blessing of the gospel. And what Paul tells us is that our blessings are in the heavenly places. And what does the Bible tell us about the heavenly places? It's significant. The Bible tells us that God lives in heaven, that God rules from heaven. And this is where he initiates his saving work. That God's throne is in heaven, which reminds us of the lordship of God over everything in his cosmos. That heaven is the focus of the blessings of salvation. Indeed, these are spiritual blessings. Finally, I want you to see that these blessings that we will learn more about beginning next week are totally, totally undeserved. The minute we begin to think that God owes us something, the minute we begin to think that God owes us mercy, we miss the whole meaning of what it means to be blessed by God. R.C. Sproul says, as a human being, I might prefer that God give his mercy to everyone equally, but I may not demand it. If God is not pleased to dispense his saving mercy to all men, then I must submit to his holy and righteous decision. God is never, never, never obligated to be merciful to sinners. That is the point we must stress if we are to grasp the whole measure of God's grace. Enter on Veterans Day, the day after Veterans Day, the movie Saving Private Ryan. Some of you have seen it. At the end of this film, you have the character that is played by Tom Hanks, who is going to breathe his last few breaths. And his final words to the man whose life he saved, Private Ryan, are these words, earn this, earn this. Half a century later, as Private Ryan morphs from a man in his early 20s to a man who's likely in his mid-80s. We find this man, an elderly man, standing in a cemetery to honor that man, played by Tom Hanks, who saved him. And it is a riveting scene. It is a powerful scene where the man stands before the white cross in Arlington Cemetery And he utters these words, 
I lived the best life I could. I hope it was enough. And he turns to his wife and he says, tell me that I was a good man. And she says, you are. And there's no denying it's a powerful scene. There's no denying that it will cause the tears to flow. But you know what that scene illustrates? It tells us what the gospel of Hollywood believes in. That you only have to be a good man. That your good deeds have to outweigh your bad deeds. And if your wife admits that you're a good man, you're good to go. The first pillar that undergirds our Christian lives and gives us a reason to rejoice is the preeminent blessing. And this is a blessing, my friends, that we can never earn. We can never be good enough to earn this preeminent blessing. This is a blessing that can never be bought. Our blessings were earned for us by the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he perfectly fulfilled the law of God. When he suffered and bled on that cross and when he died on that cross and was placed in a a hole in the ground and three days later, God raised him from the grave. I'm curious today as I look out across the sea of faces, do you have a personal relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you experienced the preeminent blessing? It's a blessing that can never be bought. It's a blessing that can never be earned. It's a blessing that was earned for you by the Lord Jesus Christ in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. For those of you who are followers of Christ, I'm wondering, are you filled this morning with unspeakable joy because of the blessings that you have received in Christ? You see, you should cry out with Paul the Apostle when he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do the blessings that you receive in Christ cause you to to worship in spirit and truth, which is what God requires? Do these blessings give you a new perspective, a sense of wonder and astonishment as you behold the grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Here's what Paul the Apostle says. Philippians 3.8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. O follower of Jesus, you have been blessed beyond all measure. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You see, the blessings that you and I have received in Christ should be permeating every aspect of your life. The blessings that we have received in Christ that we will learn more about in the coming weeks should should influence our families. The blessings that we receive in Christ should influence and impact our marriages. The blessings that we receive in Christ should have an influence of how we live our lives in the daily marketplace of ideas. They should affect how we act on the job and how we conduct ourselves in our place of employment. The blessings that we have received in Christ should have an impact 
and the relationships that we have in our community here in Whatcom County. The blessings that we have received in Christ should impact our attitudes, our actions, our words, the way we walk, the way we live, the way we talk, and on and on. You see, we have a reason to rejoice because God has chosen us. And the source of those spiritual blessings is grounded in eternal election, which is exactly where we turn our attention to next week. I want to tell you that the sermon for next week is already prepared, and I'm ready to preach it right now. And I am, no, Liz, I'm not going to. I am excited because you think about where we came from, And if you're at the bottom of the ocean or were at the bottom of the ocean with duct tape on your eyeballs and over your nose and over your mouth and over your ears and you're wrapped up in that straitjacket and you understand your position apart from grace, you know what you do in that position? You hope, you pray that the doctrine of election is true because it's your only hope. It's your only hope. And so let us cry out with Paul the Apostle, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, with just a a taste of this passage, I pray that you would whet our appetites for more. That we would understand our, our previous condition for those of us who are Christians. That we would understand the, our total inability, our lostness, our spiritual deadness our hopelessness apart from grace, and that you would cause our hearts to to well up in praise and worship. God, if there is someone here today who is not yet a Christian and they realize their their fate, God, I pray that you, by the, the work of your spirit, would wake someone up, that you would regenerate their heart, that you would quicken their heart, giving them the ability to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Thank you for these great realities. Thank you for the the great theology that emerges in the pages of Ephesians chapter 1. May our lives lives never be the same. May it affect the way we worship. May it affect the way we live. May it affect the way we talk. Would you do good things among the people of God here at Christ Fellowship? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.